Good afternoon. I think we'll go ahead and get started if you'll go ahead and find a seat. <clears throat> my name is Katherine Sainer. I'm the head of the Science and Engineering Library. And it is my privilege to welcome you to our quarterly lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz community to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress here at UCSC. Many people were involved in the production of today's event, including Vince Navoa, Sandy Schmidt, Christy Hightower, Wei Wei, Molly Ostrander, Danielle Kane, and Ferry Ramnama. As you took your seat today, you probably noticed the comment card. We are interested in hearing from you and any of your thoughts and comments and any suggestions you might have for future speakers. Uh, pencils should be available on every other seat or so, um, and there is a box to return them to at the welcome table. I hope uh, many of you saw the welcome table on your way in, but if not, stop at, by on your way out, and there are um, articles by today's speaker, Dr. Lindsay Hink, so you might want to take one of those. And you might also want to grab your very own Synergy Lecture Series post-it pad. So be sure to stop by the welcome table and see what's there. We also have a uh, sign-in sheet. For those of you who would like to be notified of future lectures, uh, we can email you if you sign on the sign-in sheet. Uh, let's see. We also have created a web page for the lecture series, which, among other things, provides you with uh, past lectures. We are, in fact, recording every lecture, and you can video stream those. Um, and also, we have a listing of all of our future speakers. And in the next year, we have three lined up, um, and those three are Susan Schwartz, Mary Silver, and David Hausler. So I hope you'll join us for some of those um, lectures uh, as they progress during the year. Uh, it's also, of course, my opportunity now to let you know that we do um, have these lectures quarterly, but not during the summer session. So our next lecture will be in October of this year. And so now it is my pleasure to introduce Christy Hightower, who is the biology and biomolecular engineering librarian. Among her many duties, Christy selects books, journals, and other materials for the library, particularly uh, in the departments for molecular, cell, and developmental biology, ecology and evolutionary biology, and, of course, biomolecular engineering. So, Christine, I'll let you take it away. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Great. Well, thank you all for coming. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Lindsay Hink from the Department of Molecular, Cell, and Developmental Biology. Dr. Hink received her BS degree in biology from Western Washington University, her MS degree in biochemistry from UC Davis, and her PhD in cancer biology from Stanford University. Before joining the UCSC faculty, she was a postdoctoral fellow at UC San Francisco. We have been privileged to have Professor Hink here at UCSC for almost seven years. Dr. Hink's lab studies organ development, and it focuses on two vertebrate systems, the nervous system, and the mammary gland, basically brains and breasts. Why the mammary gland? Dr. Hink and her lab discovered that the molecules they found in the brain not only play a role in the development of other organs such as the breast, but also play a role during cancer development. Today, Dr. Hink will be speaking to us about guidance cues that organize the nervous system during development. 
A key question in developmental biology is how such few cues generate the amazingly complex circuitry of the nervous system. Today, Dr. Hink will describe her laboratory's investigation into how neurons know where to go. We're delighted to have such a distinguished scholar and educator speak with us today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lindsay Hink. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here today. And uh, what a lovely introduction. I feel like I don't even have to give my talk. Um, but that, that's right. I'm going to give you a story today. And the story is going to be about how these guidance cues, how guidance cues were, were discovered, how they were proposed 100 years ago, and how it took 100 years to really uh, find, them, find them and characterize them. Uh, and so when I, I realized I said yes to this lecture, and it is an honor and a pleasure, I realized um, describing developmental neurobiology to a lay audience was going to be, well, interesting. And so um, the, the most I want to do is entertain you. And uh, we'll see about uh, anything more than that, okay? So here we go. Um, this is a neuron. And we have here a cell body. And you see a neuron extends a process called an axon. And at the tip of the axon is a really specialized motil structure called the growth cone. And I'm, I'm speaking motil. During development, billions and billions of neurons have to get to the right place at the right time to wire the nervous system. I don't know, some of you might have noticed I have an experiment going right here, right now, five months. Okay? Billions and billions of neurons have already gotten to the right place at the right time. I mean, that's already happened. And, um, and, and that's the process I'm going to tell you about. And it has to happen relatively rapidly, and it has to be absolutely correct. Uh, later on, after birth, there's activity-dependent remodeling of those connections. But right now, in Flynn here, all the neurons are approximately at the right place at the right time. And they, and they get to the right place at the right time based on cues. And these are cues that are secreted in the nervous system. And these cues can act as either attractants, that is to say that they can be secreted by point sources and actively attract axons to targets. Or they can be um, secreted by non-target exclusion zones and actually tell the axons to stay away. Okay? And whether a neuron is attracted or repelled of course, depends on specific receptors that are present on the growth cone of the neuron. And I'm going to tell you about a single cue today called Netrin. Netrin is Sanskrit for to guide. And it can act both ways. Both it's bifunctional. It can act as an attractant, and it can act as a repellent. But the story for Netrin and all these guidance cues starts 100 years ago almost 100 years ago. 1906, Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was given to these two men, these two gentlemen, Camilo Golgi and Ramoni Cajal, in recognition of their work on the structure of the nervous system. 
Camille Golgi, a remarkable scientist. He actually uh, described 100 years ago hematopoiesis, the development of the blood cells and the blood system. He also was just, as many scientists were then, Renaissance man. And so he did many things. Um, and one of the things he um, uh, developed was a, a specific dye. And it was a way of perfusing tissues, nervous tissues, um, which we still actually don't really understand the, the biochemical basis of. But the remarkable thing about his stain is that it didn't stain every single neuron. Well, that's a good thing when you have billions of neurons, because you want to stain a percentage of them, 10% of them. And then you can sort of see where they are in the forest. You can see the trees for the woods. And so actually, here's an image of an original preparation from Golgi's laboratory. And interestingly, and I like these stories, uh, it's like the story of Bill Clinton when he lost the governorship, that you can go over hardship. Golgi was kicked out of his hospital, and he had to find a new place, and he went to a new hospital, and they didn't have any laboratory there. And so he went into the kitchen, and he created a laboratory in the kitchen at the turn of the century. And it's actually in that kitchen that he made this preparation. And you can see for the first time, and this was for the first time, that, um, that you can see a cell body, and you can see the processes. Now, I also like this story with Golgi, because you can shows that you can be right, and you can make amazing contributions in science, but you don't have to be right all the time. And the thing about Golgi is he was wrong about the nervous system. He thought it was just one big syncytium, like one huge cell that extended from the tip to the toe. He just didn't have it on the money there. But the person who had it on the money was this gentleman, Ramboni Cajal. And, it's, and the reason uh, he's on the money is the reason he got the Nobel Prize. I love this picture because Ramoni Cajal actually trained as an artist. But his dad told him that there was no money in art. And so he convinced Ramoni to go to medical school. But he loved, you know, he loved art, essentially. And, he, and he, so it, the way he approached scientists was, science was as an artist. And what he did is he drew things. So he would look through the beginning, the, the, the microscopes available at the time, and he would do these beautiful camera lucida drawings, is what they're called. And it was with his keen observational powers that he understand, and Golgi's stain, and Golgi's stain, that allowed him to stain 10% of the neurons. But it was with that observational powers that allowed him to realize that there were lots of neurons, billions of neurons, and that they extended these growth cones. And he would, do, and he would draw, this is a cross-section through a spinal cord, where he was drawing how these connections were made. And it was just through this artist's rendition that he postulated fundamental things about the nervous system that has taken 100 years to prove. And the one I'm going to tell you about today um, is this postulate. This is the spinal cord. And this is the cartoon you're going to see for the rest of the talk. And what I'm going to tell you about today are some neurons called commissural neurons. Okay? And these neurons, they have cell bodies that reside dorsally here. And they extend their growth cones, their axons that have at the tip these specialized structures called the growth cones. They extend these growth cones 
pretty far. This is 0.5 millimeters, which in an embryo is pretty far, a long distance. And he postulated cues. He said, you know what? It has to be cues at a distance that allows the nervous system to, to extend these axons, these long distances. And that was all fine and well, but no one could prove these cues. No one could find them. No one could purify them. No one had their little hands on these cues for 100, well, 90 years. Until this gentleman, Mark Tessier Levine, while he was a postdoc in the Jessel Lab in New York City, decided, decided to, 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 to go after this problem. Now, Mark is really a remarkable person. I did my postdoctoral work with him at UCSF. First of all, I'd like to point out that his, PA, uh, his undergraduate degree was in physics, where he won the Canadian Scholars Award, number one physics undergraduate in the country. And then he went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, where he studied biology and philosophy, Cambridge. And then he decided to do a PhD, and he did one in England. And then he went on to do his postdoctoral work. And the story goes is that he read the original Cajal work because he's fluent in French and Spanish, for that matter. And he realized this problem was lingering in biology, and he was going to solve it. <clears throat> I should point out, all, uh, to entertain, um, he's left academics now. He's at Genentech, chief scientific <laughs> officer. And uh, he's taken all this information, and it's really interesting to realize that he, uh, much of this likely applies to central nervous system regeneration after injury. And so that's the focus of his work now. <clears throat> OK. But when he was a postdoc, he worked on embryos. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of today, are embryos. I think they're so beautiful. If you ever want to come to my lab, you can see embryos. We, we have them every week. And here we are, eye, head, and uh, the spinal cord. And if you take a cross-section through the embryo, uh, and we have our schematized view here, the cartoon I told you you're going to see a lot of. And once again, I'm going to remind you that there are these commissural neurons which are growing out, extending their axons towards this floor plate. Okay. And what Mark said is he needed an experimental system to work on. So he did an experiment. He did a dissection reconstitution experiment where he decided that he could take uh, bits of tissue, essentially he could dissect out this dorsal portion, and he could put it in a gel with this ventral portion, the target, so he could take uh, the cell bodies and put them together with the target, and he could show that these commissural axons could be directed to that target. Okay. Well, that was all fine and good. Then he started his own lab. Actually, you know, he got a beautiful nature letter on this. He proved that Ramoni Cajal was likely correct. That, in fact, this simple experiment showed that 100 years ago, when Ramoni Cajal said there was something in this floor plate that attracted these commissural axons, well, there does indeed seem to be something in that floor plate that attracted them. So on the basis of that, Mark started his lab at the University of California, San Francisco. And this is really a story about how science is done by many people. And so at this point, Mark is in his office writing grants, but he... <laughs> but he uh, but he, he convinced two talented postdocs, Tito Serafini and Tim Kennedy, to join his lab and purify. He said, OK, we're going to purify this factor. We're going to get our hands on this factor. 
100 years, it's about time we get the factor. Uh, let's see. So Tito, Tito, uh, Tito's now at Renovis, which is a company he started with Mark before Mark decided to go to Genentech. And uh, Tim is at the Montreal Neurological Institute today. He's doing really well. He does a, he, he's a, my competitor, and we do a lot of similar work. We try to talk, and, uh, but, but he's doing really well. And, uh, but 10 years ago, they, um, they said, OK, Mark, that sounds like a great idea. But I'm telling you, we can't purify this factor from this embryonic structure, the floor plate. There's just no way. I mean, in an embryo, you, the floor plate represents the tiniest bit of tissue. How do you expect us to get our hands on that? So that was the first problem. And so they, did, they made a leap. They said, OK, if it's in the floor plate in the embryo, maybe it's a really important factor and doesn't just guide commissural axons. It's going to guide lots of axons. There's lots of axons in the brain. And so they said, let's just see if we can make an extract of brain and get an activity, this outgrowth activity of these commissural neurons on spinal cord tissue. And they did that. They saw it. So here, here we go. We just have a bit of that tissue again, that dorsal tissue here. And we've decided just to put embryonic brain extract on it, and we get this proliferative outgrowth. OK, well, that's good news, because now we have a source. At least we can dissect brains. OK, so that's what they decided to do. 20,000 embryonic brains. They used to call it Marie Antoinette days <laughs> at UCSF. They would paper the entire lab. People would bring their, their loved ones, their girlfriend and boyfriends. Tim would bring his 16-year-old daughter in. They would set up buckets, and they used chick brains. So you can get fertilized eggs, time them. You can then uh, crack the eggs, get the chick, cut off the head, get rid of the scalp, the beginning of the scalp and plop the, the brain in a bucket. So it was just enormous tour de force that they did. And uh, so it took 20,000 brains. And when they finished that dissection, Tito would go in the cold room. And he would work all night long to try to purify Netrin. And, and this is really, this is a remarkable, it was a tour de force that had never been done before, this kind of, di, uh, this kind of uh, biochemical purification of a factor that works in the embryo like this. So Tito took trial and error. He realized he had to fractionate the, cell, the brains. He did a salt extraction of the membranes. He put it over a column, put it over a second column, put it over a third column, put it over a fourth column. And each time he would, get, uh, he would put it over a column, he would bring out what he came out at flow through, and he would give it to Mark, and Mark would assay it for activity. And that's how they would keep track. And over time, he realized that this is, this is the method he would have to do in order to come and to, to, to get the proteins. And let's see what, what, what this was like. So here we go. So we have a netrin purification. This is from his original paper published in 1994. And what we're running here are all the proteins in a brain extract. So if you run a gel, you can separate proteins based on molecular weight. Now, I know you're a lay person, so a lot of what I'm going to start telling you, you're just going to have to take my word for it. It's what you can do. But you can do that, and you can stain them. So you can see that all these bands rep represent individual proteins. And these are just the ones you can see. There's many more on the gel that you can't see that aren't even detectable. 
But you see that a crude homogenate of brains has a lot of protein in it. And then you can start putting it over these columns, the X, the high salt extract, the heparin column, the next column, and eventually he got down to single proteins on the gel. This is, this is, this is Netrin right here. Netrin 1 and Netrin 2, because there's not only, he realized there wasn't just one activity, there was two activities. And he separated them from each other. So as I said, 20,000 embryonic brains took to develop the entire procedure. Took 5,000 embryonic brains to get enough protein then to actually cut this protein out of the gel and micro-sequence it in order to clone the gene. Because what we're really after is once we have the protein, we want the gene. Because the gene we can start to manipulate. Okay, so every 1,000 brains, he got 5 micrograms of netrin. 1 and 1.5 micrograms of netrin, oops, 2. And the enrichment from his purification was about 10 to 20,000 fold. So as I said, the, the thing that he wanted was the gene. So he got the gene, he sequenced it, and he actually cloned the gene. So once you get the gene, you can read the sequence of it, and you can start to draw cartoons about the structure. And so I'm just going to show you the cartoon of Netrin. So Netrin is a, is a protein that's secreted. That's what we need to have it to be, to be able to be a diffusible cue. It has to be able to be put out into the environment. And um, it has a positively charged C domain and two other domains called 6 and 5 that actually looked like another protein that we had already known, actually we'd known for a long time, called laminin, which is an extracellular matrix component, which is already a protein that's out in the, in the environment. And that just goes to show that Mother Nature is very parsimonious. She doesn't design things all over again. She uses genes and proteins that she knows works and uses them in different contexts. And that's what appears to be going on with Netrin. But let's see, do, do we actually clone Netrin? So what is the criteria for something like Netrin? I mean, Tito, Tim, and Mark are very careful scientists. So let's talk about how they proved that that little band on a gel that they cloned and got the gene for, how is that really Netrin? How do they know that's really Netrin? Well, one thing, it has to elicit the outgrowth of those commissural spinal neurons, obviously. And so that's the first experiment they did. So this was the original experiment of Marks, where he took that little bit of floor plate tissue, and he showed that the commissural axons from the dorsal spinal cord would grow profusely towards it. And this is their experiment now that they have the gene for Netrin. So they have a clump of cells here, two clumps of cells. One clump over here doesn't, it's just a clump of cells. This clump of cells is that clump plus expressing Netrin. So the only difference between these is they have the gene for Netrin, and they made those cells right there express it. And when they did that, look what they got. They got that profuse and directed outgrowth of the commissural neurons towards Netrin. That was pretty good evidence that maybe what they got was what they, what they thought was what's outgrowth promoting or this guidance activity. Well, what's some other criteria for Netrin? Well, certainly it would have to be at the right place at the right time to be this Q, right? So they were able to show that. They are able here, here's our cartoon of a cross-section through a spinal cord. And here is a technique called in-situ hybridization. And I'm going to 
outline the spinal cord right here, this cross-section. And I'm going to point out that the commissural neurons, the cell bodies, are up here. And they're extending their axons down towards the floor plate. That's the region that Mark first dissected out. And that bright white starry night right there, that's netrin expression. So that really was the second piece of evidence that netrin's in the right place at the right time to be the cue. And finally, the acid test. Let's make a mouse that doesn't have netrin. Okay, we'll knock out the gene in a mouse. And then we'll ask what the commissural neurons are doing. And so that's what we did. So we have tremendous capabilities in biology today. And so we're able to make mice that are mice, except they don't have one gene. Okay? So this is the netrin knockout. And, so, and, and, uh, and, and what they did to analyze this is called an open book preparation. I love this preparation. Because what they do is they dissect out the embryonic spinal cord. There it is, whole spinal cord. And then they just fillet it open. They just cut it in half and make a fillet. And that's the fillet right there. And we're looking now cross-view. We're looking cross-view at all these commissural neurons as they cascade down into the floor plate where netrin is expressed. Okay, and that's the wild type right there. That's the spinal cord. And over here is our knockout mouse. This is a mouse with everything but netrin. And you can see here that these commissural neurons, these axons, are extended, and they only get about halfway. Look at that. They're just stalled right there. And that they just don't make it all the way to the floor plate. I mean, sure, some might make it, but most of them turn or stall. They're just incomplete. And indeed, this mouse um, is embryonic lethal. It dies at birth. And it's, you know, it's got a lot of axon guidance defects. Okay. Well, I know. They got very famous over these experiments. They actually got um, money from the Hughes, Howard Hughes Medical Institute based on this, this purification. Um, both Tito and Tim got jobs. Um, and it was a very exciting time. But there was one sort of humorous wrinkle. And that is when they discovered they had netrin. And by the way, they got to name it. So they named it Netrin, Sanskrit to guide. They spent, I hear, weeks in the lab just finding the right name. Um, and, but when they put the sequence into the data banks, some very interesting piece of information came back. And that is that that gene had already been found before. Isn't that amazing? So they weren't the first. They weren't the pioneers. The pioneers didn't realize that it was the, that it was the gene that guided commissural neurons of the gene that Ramoni Call proposed existed. But the pioneers knew that there were genes that guided axons. Because the people who had originally discovered it, discovered it in this organism right here. The small, free-living nematode called C. elegans. It makes sense. I mean, we really understand that that's the crux of biology. That's what the human uh, sequencing the human genome showed us. That in fact, us humans, we're not that much different than that worm. We have about the same number of genes, actually. We just use them differently or a little bit more complicated. We alternatively splice them. Um, but that's the point, is that it, they had already been found. Um, the one thing about um, uh, finding genes in C. elegans is that you name them for the way the mutant looks. 
And so it had kind of a, not a very sexy name. Actually, Netrin is the name still. The literature really likes Netrin better than this name, which is Unc Six. Why Unc? Because the mutants were uncoordinated. Oh, of course that makes total sense, doesn't it, right? If you don't have your neurons there or in the proper place at the right time, you're going to be uncoordinated. So these worms are actually alive. They just can't, they can't, they, they, they can't move very well. So, so here we go. So it turns out that you cannot take a cross-section through C. elegans, and it looks something like a spinal cord, kind of, in that you have neurons whose cell bodies reside dorsally and who extend their axons ventrally, there's a growth cone, towards a source of UNC6 or netrin. And, and it's very interesting that, um, that uh, that the thing that they had, real major advance they had made in C. elegans is they understood something about the receptors. And so they understood that there was a specific protein that was on these neurons that received the signal of unc or netrin. Okay, so that was the first really, they learned that right away when Mark understood that he cloned the same protein as unc6, that there was a key into insight into the receptors. And the second really important fact was they understood it was bifunctional here. Because in the vertebrate, we only understood that it could actively attract those commissural axons toward the foreplate. But in the worm, they understood that ONC6 also repelled these motor neurons, so that there were um, cell bodies that resided down here ventrally near netrin ONC6 source, and that when they extended their axons and their growth cones, they were repelled away from, from netrin. And so that was the first hint that it could act as a bifunctional cue. And they, in C. elegans, they also knew this is a much easier organism to work on. They also understood something about the receptors that mediated repulsion. And what they realized is that there were two receptors, UNC5 and the same one, UNC40 again. So UNC5 was special for repulsion, but it worked together with UNC40 this receptor that mediated attraction. Okay, so I'm talking about receptors because that's where we're going. Okay, that's where we're going to go next. And so, of course, Mark wanted to go there next too. I mean, of course, competitive guy. He cloned the unks. He wants the receptors next to see, well, how, is, how much conservation of homology, how much can we extend the story in the vertebrates? And so, um, so, uh, so it made sense to, to, uh, to have postdocs come and start working on the receptors. And this is where my story starts. But let me just uh, explain to you that, that, so we would expect the same thing. We would expect that a source of netrin invertebrates, uh, axons could be attracted to that source if they, uh, if they express DCC in blue here, our DCC cartoon, or they'd be repelled away from the source of netrin if they expressed a combination of DCC and UNC5. And I'm going to call it DCC because when we cloned the vertebrate homolog, it had already been identified. Isn't that funny? So we keep on, it's, science works on itself. It had already been identified. And so we had to call it DCC. So we call the vertebrate homologs UNC5 homologs and DCC. Okay, so. 
if we're going to start this, it seemed practical to start with attraction in vertebrates, because we, we had a whole biology about attraction. We had this biology, these commissural neurons, which are attracted to the floor plate. This is the basis of the biochemical purification. Certainly, we could uh, identify whether this UNC40 or DCC could be the attractant receptor for netrin. And uh, that's when I joined the lab, and uh, four of us, actually, Masayuki Masu and Kazuko Kainu Masu, I couldn't find a picture of her, um, together with Dave Leonardo and me, we all, uh, we all came together to clone netrin receptors. Fortunately, there's a lot of them, so we could, we could divvy up the work. And Masayuki and Kazuko worked primarily on DCC and Neogenin, and Dave and I, as you'll see, worked primarily on the UNC5s. So, so here we were. We, we understood that these vertebrate homologs existed. It did still take a year to actually get our hands on the vertebrate homologs. It's not actually trivial to clone that many, uh, that, gene that, that homology distance from a C. elegans all the way to a human. So we had to use some very uh, technical ways to get our hands on our vertebrate homologs. But eventually we did, and we had the gene in hand called DCC. I wasn't going to tell you, I mean, I should. DCC. What is DCC? I told you it had this name. Where did it come from? DCC stands in deleted and colorectal carcinoma, the cover of science 15 years ago. Because it had been cloned because it's a region of a chromosome that um, is often deleted in families that have a high incidence of colorectal cancer. And when they figured out the breakpoint of the chromosome, they figured out it was in DCC. And so it was, that must be it. They got the name, deleted in colorectal cancer. And so years were going by, though, and they couldn't nail the evidence that DCC was really responsible for colorectal cancer. And there was this poor graduate student at MIT who had made the mouse and he, the, the knockout mouse, the acid test that DCC is what they said it was, the one that, you know, knockout. And he was doing these very long-term experiments. Cancer biology takes a long time because cancer takes time. So he's in his eighth year at MIT. No tumors, <laughs> no mice. So it's a good thing we bailed him out. We bailed him out because we called him up and we told him that DCC is the netrin receptor and he should be looking at the nervous system. Um, but let me, before I digress, back to our story, I'll uh, point out to you that DCC, the reason, the problem with that whole experiment was that there was a tiny little gene next to DCC that was also knocked out in those families. And it took them another 15 years to figure out that deleted in what they now call pancreatic cancer, and it's also deleted in colorectal cancer, is another entirely different gene. So it was a false lead there. Ah, it was painful. But fortunately, Amin, Amin Fazeli is the person who had, uh, who had knocked out DCC. Um, he, uh, he came to the lab, and he did some of these experiments with us, particularly when we worked on the knockout in a few minutes. Uh, I'll tell you about that. But here we have DCC, and we're trying to prove that it's the netrin receptor. How do we prove it? Well. First thing we want to know if a receptor is the thing that's on the growth cone that receives the signal. So therefore, if it's receiving the signal, it has to bind the signal. 
So that's our first question. Does it bind netrin? Can it reach out and grab netrin, so to speak? And so this is what we're doing. We're doing a binding overlay assay where we take cells. These are just cells grown in tissue culture on a dish. And we're expressing different proteins in them, DCC, and a protein that looks a lot like DCC called TAG1, and another one that looks a lot like DCC called L1. And what we're doing is we're adding to this uh, cells, we're adding some netrin that we've been able to tag so that if it binds the cells, it will light it up in a beautiful red color. And what you can see is only DCC, only cells that express DCC in the beautiful green color also bind netrin. There's these background cells here that don't express DCC and they don't bind netrin. And these molecules here, even though they look a lot like DCC, they don't bind netrin at all. So this was our first uh, evidence that DCC at least was a, bi a netrin binding protein, if not the netrin receptor. <clears throat> Second piece of evidence is, is it in the right place at the right time? I mean, it's got to do the work. And if it's going to do the work, it has to be in the nervous system. And so here we go. We have DCC expression. And here's our cross-section through our spinal cord. Here's our commissural neurons that extend their axons towards the floor plate. And we want to ask whether DCC is there. And if we look here in this starry picture, this is called in situ hybridization, we can see DCC expression as the bright white. And if we look over here by Im immunohistochemistry, this is using antibodies in brown, we can also see that we can see DCC. So it's in the right place at the right time. And finally, we want to know about its activity. And so there's two ways to look at this. We can use this, cult, this assay in vitro, where we use that bit of tissue from the, from, the, from the spinal cord, this dorsal bit of tissue. And we see that when we add netrin, I've already shown you this, you get this profuse outgrowth of this commissural neurons. And when you add a function-blocking antibody to DCC, a reagent that can go in there and, and make DCC not function, then you don't get that outgrowth. You get tremendously blocked outgrowth of those commissural neurons. And these are just controls. So the experiment is outgrowth, no outgrowth when you add a reagent that blocks the ability of DCC to work. And then finally, we have our last piece of evidence. And our evidence is the knockout mouse. So this is where Amin Fizeli comes in. So he comes uh, to the UCSF, and, um, and we look at the neurons in his mouse. So they don't have colon cancer. But sure enough, if we do our fillet experiment and we fillet open our spinal cords, we see our control where all these spinal neurons, commissural neurons, make it. And when we look at the netrin knockout, I showed you how they didn't make it. And here they are. Here's our commissural neurons in the DCC knockout. And they make it only about halfway. And sure enough, they, they, they don't make it to the floor plate. They don't make it to netrin expression. So that the netrin knockout and the DCC knockout look a lot the same. And that's really the evidence that these two are receptor and ligand. OK. Well, let's see. What about repulsion? I feel like I've taught you a lot of developmental neurobiology. I don't know. We go a little while longer, but we may have to. How are you guys doing out there? OK, a few more minutes then. What about repulsion? Well, repulsion one of these UNC5 receptors. And we, uh, as I re reminded you, we had hints from them about C. elegans. And 
C. elegans had already identified these UNC5s, and that allowed us to identify them too. And so David and I cloned these UNC5 homologs. The problem with UNC5 homologs is there's homologs, four of them, actually. That's made it much harder to work on, especially to get the evidence in vivo, because we need to knock out all of them to get the axon guidance defects. So <clears throat> that's been a tough. Let me show you what we've done, though. First of all, we were able to show they bind netrin. So we got these UNC5 homologs, and they, they're netrin binding proteins. And of course, we wanted to make the knockouts, but actually, we just this summer will have a double an UNC5 homolog A and UNC5 homolog B. And with the double, we think that there are some true axon guidance defects, because each single knockout alone is running around its cage. <laughs> so that's the breaks. So it's been six years, again, uh, to, to get the knockout. So in the meantime, what, is, what does a scientist do, you know? And so, well, we do the following kinds of experiments. There's other criteria for a receptor. One is just whether you can, you can show that it guides neurons. And there's lots of ways to look at neurons. You can look at neurons in tissue like you do in a knockout mouse, where you fillet the whole spinal cord and you look at million neurons. That was one way. But another way is you can look at single neurons. And so that's what we decided to start to do. And so here we have a single neuron right there. And we actually have a pipette right here. And we're delivering netrin to this single neuron. And we're taking pictures in real time. So we're taking time, time pictures, video, of our neuron. And what it does is, in netrin, it's attracted. So we see the growth cone turning towards it. And we can do whole traces of, the, of multiple. We, of course, we don't just collect one neuron. We show that 10 neurons can be attracted by netrin. And we can show that we can block that attraction using that reagent that blocks the DCC. And then here's our experiment. Our experiment is that we can convert attraction to repulsion by just expressing our UNC5 receptors in this neuron. So we can express our UNC5 receptors, and this attraction converts to repulsion. And so that's pretty good evidence that just the addition of a single gene can actually turn the direction of how a neuron migrates in a gradient of netrin in vitro. So in vitro. So we still don't have that in vivo evidence. But we've got pretty good evidence that neurons can be guided by netrin based on the expression of DCC attraction, DCC and UNC5 repulsion. So very similar to the, what the worm model predicted. And, so, and so, here, so here we stand now, 10 years later, knowing that we have in hand DCC, and it creates attraction to a netrin gradient. And we have in hand UNC5 and DCC. And with that combination, you get repulsion. The next thing you do in science is you start to go downstream called downstream. Downstream is what goes on inside the cell to guide these neurons. How does the axon, how does that axon out there that's reading a netrin gradient, it's got netrin up there at the ceiling, the axon's going up towards netrin, how does it convert that signal into directional motility? That's unbelievably complicated if you think about it. You have to remodel the entire 
cytoskeleton, the entire inside of a neuron in order to be able to get it to move to a different place. And so that's really where we are in my lab. And uh, when I started my lab, I, I realized that people like Tim, the guy I showed who did the natrium purification, he was going to work on attraction. That was a pretty simple problem. They had an assay. He was going to go downstream. And indeed, lots of labs have gone downstream. And we know a relatively lot about downstream. All these proteins are downstream from DCC. I thought, well, I'm going to start my lab. And I, I don't want to compete with all those people going downstream of DCC. I'm going to come over here and work on UNC5s. Because really little bit is known about what's going on UNC5. And fortunately, I was able to um, convince a few people Megan Williams here, who's popping a champagne cork on her PhD thesis. So I convinced her to work on it, and she actually succeeded. She's in San Diego doing a postdoc. And Serena Wu, another postdoc, who was joined by Will McKenna and Joe Bartow to go downstream. And we've identified proteins that bind downstream and that uh, do a really important thing. And I'm going to summarize here. We have a protein that goes downstream and does a very important thing, and that is this. It's coming to the end of the talk, so just bear with me. We're downstream, and it's a problem that we have neurons that go really far. We have neurons that start in the spinal cord, for example, and they go all the way to the tip of the toe. That's a long way. And when you're guiding a neuron for that distance, you only have a few cues, and you often need to use netrin, both as an attractant and as a repellent in one trajectory. Okay? And you're growing along. You don't have time to talk back to the cell body and make a whole new gene expression program. You have to be fast. If you see a netrin source and you need to be attracted to it, you need to have DCC on the surface. If you get past that netrin source and you need to be repelled away from it, to get away from it, you need to have UNC5 and DCC on the surface. And you want to be able to be quick and be able to affect that change in a way that in five months your entire nervous system's patterned. Okay? And what we've discovered is the cell has developed mechanisms to do that. The cell has developed a way to actually specifically pull UNC5 receptors off the cell surface called receptor trafficking, where you just selectively only take UNC5 receptors off the cell surface so you can convert repulsion to attraction by just removing one receptor. And you can do this fast in the matter of minutes rather than in the matter of hours or days. And so uh, that's really the experiments I were going to tell you about, but I think you guys have been such Great, and most of you are even still awake out there, which is good. Um, and so I'm going to not put you through much more science. That's the deal. So I'll point out one more experiment that we did. So here we go. Well, I'm labeling UNC5 on the cell surface of a growth cone. Isn't that beautiful? It's like a little Christmas tree right there. Little ornaments. Those ornaments are UNC5. Probably uh, UNC5 uh, forms uh, dimers and trimers, and there's probably uh, groups of UNC5s that meet together on the surface. And we can treat with a, uh, an activator of an enzyme, a kinase, and that, that's what happens to the surface expression of UNC5. 
It's completely removed, matter of minutes. And we can get a functional readout for that. Look at this. We have a growth cone here, and when it has UNC5 on the receptor, remember that's a repellent receptor. Well, if you add Netrin, we can do what's called collapse that growth cone. That's catastrophic repulsion, right? They just go, oh my god, that's so much Netrin, I have to collapse. But we can, if we can, we can uh, do our experimental manipulation, we can get rid of UNC5 expression, we no longer collapse the growth cone in response to Netrin. And we can also show that you can guide Netrin, uh, these growth cones based on the same sorts of experiments. And so, and so that's the story. I mean, we've gone all the way from 100 years ago, Ramoni Cajal saying, you know what? Nervous system's made up of billions of neurons, and they all have to be coordinated to get to the right place at the right time. Uh, just a guy 100 years ago making, making an idea. And we can see that science builds on ideas. We have one postdoc, Mark Tessier-Levine, who says, hey, that's a, good, that's a really good idea. And, and then you have people joining Mark, Tito and Tim, to do these tour de force biochemical purification. Then they get the gene. Then you get me and Masayuki and Kazuko and Dave coming in, and we found the receptors. And we work with people from C. elegans. We, we collaborated with them on getting our genes, sharing sequences, sharing data. And then people like me go out and start my own lab and start tackling the next problem, going downstream, thinking about the real molecular mechanism of how neurons actually respond to these signals. I really think Ramoni Cajal would be, he'd be really proud. You know? And so I, I like to remember him because you know, he's really gave birth to the field, really, him and Camille Golgi. And, um, and I really want to thank the people who do all this work, because really I'm just in my lab, in my office now, writing grants, like Mark was on those Marie Antoinette days. He never did any dissections. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, the people in my lab. Megan really made it possible. She was my first graduate student. She had the faith to join my lab when I said, oh, I guess we're going to do this downstream thing here with Unc5. <laughs> and she took off with it. And Will, who came in and set up a lot of the assays, and Joe, who's been working on these molecular mechanisms, and Phyllis Strickland, who keeps my lab running. And, uh, and the audience, thanks for, did you learn any developmental neurobiology out there? Okay, cool, okay. That was really fun. Questions, yeah. So someone has to ask a question, right? In the way back. Right, so I mentioned that. Mark's at Genentech now developing that. And uh, I actually am on the patent for Netrin and Netrin receptors, so that's good for me. So I always know when it uh, looks pretty good. It was a pretty good year. Looks like a couple companies is licensing, uh, licensing the genes in that whole concept. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's complicated because regeneration, it's not that those uh, neurons... It's not that the neurons are as damaged, the neurons get so damaged from inflammation at the time of injury. And, it, and it's true, it, it's not clear that after you prevent that inflammation and damage, whether you need to evoke new uh, molecules to get them to grow. And that's not absolutely clear. And I think the focus right now is just trying to uh, stem the damage at the time or get in there and try to uh, reverse that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Ah, the chicken and the egg thing. So I think the question is, okay, how does Netra know to be expressed at these different places to guide the neurons? And that, my friend, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, it's, good. it's a great question. Now, the Netra knockout dies at birth. It dies probably from a, dia uh, a diaphragm. It can't breathe, so there's diaphragmatic problems. Um, and uh, it has major uh, axon guidance defects, primarily in all axons that cross the midline. So the major thing that Netrin does is it's expressed right in the midline during development. And the reason that we're so able to be coordinated left to right is that we have neurons that cross and so innervate from either side. And in Netrin knockout, those neurons can't cross the midline during development. Uh, yeah, they were never live. Uh, uh, yeah, he had to do a lot of tricks in order to have them live long enough uh, to um, to see if the cancer experiment. So we had to do targeted knockouts in colon tissue, but um, but the true DCC absolute null also dies at birth. A few more. Ah, right. And so that was the other uh, thing I did when I started my lab. I mean, I loved being a developmental neuroscientist. But um, as, as Christy said, uh, my PhD is in cancer biology. And so when we cloned netrons, we knew right away that they were expressed in all kinds of organs during development. And development is a really good model system for cancer. Because deve during development, cells are doing a lot of things cancer cells do in reverse later on. They're proliferating rapidly. They're migrating to targets appropriately in that case. And later on, those things are recapitulated in an inappropriate way. They proliferate rapidly, and they migrate to the wrong place. And so, I, um, so there uh, was pretty good evidence that Netrin could play a role in cancer. And so I started a project looking at breast, breast development and then breast cancer. And, um, and it looks as if, right, Netrin, it's, it's, a, it's bad to lose Netrin downstream. So cancer is a multi-step process, but the thing that makes a benign tumor scary is metastasis. And the thing that Netrin seems to play a role in is inappropriately guiding tissues to wrong cells to wrong places later on during development. But whether that could ever be used um, as a basis of medicine, you know, to a drug, is not clear. But we're understanding that process a lot clear, better now. Any other questions? Great. Thank you very much.